Our text today is uh, from this this preacher who most likely is uh, the king over Jerusalem, over uh, Israel, Solomon, the son of David. Solomon uh, experienced all kinds of successes in life, um, expanded the territory that Israel controlled to the the territory that God had promised uh, to give the people when they entered the promised land. Solomon experienced uh, uh, prosperity in his kingdom. Uh, He experienced personal wealth. At times, it seems like his wealth was uh, built on the shoulders of others. He owned slaves, and we aren't told whether uh, how he treated those slaves, but um, or, or even necessarily where those slaves came from, but probably uh, he was um, not always upright in the way that he ruled. He talks later in the book about oppression of the poor and the use of those, abuse of those who are in power of, those, of others. Most likely Solomon uh, did those things at times. But still, we looked last week at the fact that Solomon, uh, we shouldn't just view him as an overall bad guy. He reigned uh, with a a fair amount of justice, despite his having many concubines. So sometimes it's tough to tease out where he's good and where he's not. But one thing that is clear from his writing is that he says that his wisdom never left him. He's not writing from the voice of a madman, somebody trying to figure out life uh, from all of the, uh, uh, still trying to figure out life from, from where he is. He's writing as someone who has experienced, been through the depths, experience these things, sins, but also is able to cognitively, cogently explain them to others. This is where I've been. I've done bad, I've done good. But I've learned these things. It's likely that he's writing these things later in life, having experienced so many things. Last week, we were looking at Solomon's various pursuits of pleasure, various pursuits to find happiness in life. At the end of that, in verse 11, he says, all this was vanity and a striving after wind, using the familiar phrase. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. This week, we're going to continue reading this chapter 2 and see where he turns next. And the subject that he turns to next is the subject of death. In fact, it It takes a while in reading this over, and it took me a while to really zero in on the fact that he is talking primarily about death through all of what we're going to read today until you get to verse 24. Darkness itself is oftentimes compared with death. Perhaps in verse 13 when we come to that, that's what he's referring to. But he's weighing everything against this one simple fact, and that is that no matter how wise you are, no matter how prosperous you are, no matter how many pleasures you experience, all of us will experience death. Starting with verse 12, 
So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity for of the wise as of the fool. There is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. And so I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and a striving after the wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of God will stand forever. You pray with me. O Lord, would you open our eyes to see, our ears to hear, and our hearts to believe these your words, to understand these difficult, enigmatic things, so that we can live wisely, but also live with hope and joy. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So for the past week, I have been busy, our whole family has been busy taking everything out of our garage and rebuilding shelves that were poorly built by me four years ago so that an earthquake doesn't destroy everything that we store in there someday. But also building a room in the front of the garage, hopefully to be used for the prayer meetings and other meetings uh, for the church, and also as a study for, for me and, uh, and uh, a schoolroom for our, our kids at times. 
It's a major project. It's about the biggest building project that I'm going to tackle. Solomon built these massive structures, including the temple itself. I'm content to put up a wall in a garage and put some boards over there to make it look nice. As I was preparing for the sermon in the partially built garage, under strung outdoor lights because I've taken down the lights, just thinking about what we studied last week at the beginning of chapter 2 that I'm expecting to get some kind of great joy out of this building project. I'm expecting that it will be a fun place to work. That I won't have to look at the spider webs anymore as I'm preparing sermons in my garage office or the things that have just piled up around me. Storage or meant to be going into storage just sitting there. But I was also reminded that those pleasures are fleeting and even if I keep the garage in a good shape and even if we make improvements to it, that the pleasure that comes to that is ultimately limited. It's not going to bring all the answers to our problems, nor will a better organizational system or even better behaved kids or more fulfillment at work. Unless, unless those things are tied to something that gives all of those things ultimate meaning. You see, most of us bounce through life with an expectation that if just this next thing happens, we're going to be a lot better off, a lot happier in life. If only I could get this, then I'll be satisfied. But of course you can ask any uber-rich person if they are still satisfied. And the famous answer that comes back is, well, how much is enough? Just a little bit more. Solomon points out later in Ecclesiastes that it's actually the laborer who sleeps best at night oftentimes. This passage wrestled with finding enjoyment and not being able to sleep. Even with all of his successes, all of his pleasures, he still couldn't sleep. And part of that may be responsibility and knowing of the responsibility that you have. But part of it, part of it is trying to find that pleasure ultimately in things that are not meant to carry the pleasure. Trying to find satisfaction in things that can't bear the weight of the expectations that we put on those things. And it's both things, material things, houses, rooms, furniture, but more dangerously, oftentimes, it's people. Spouses, kids, co-workers, bosses, friends, extended family, And Solomon is probing the depths of where we can find this satisfaction, where we can find ultimate joy. And he says at the end of this, and we're going to come back to this, is where we closed, where we looked last week, that these things are meant to give us joy. There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil, 
This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? But before he gets there, Solomon wrestles through some other things that we have to come to grips with before we can get to the point that we can enjoy the things God gives us well and find satisfaction in what those things are designed to give us and not look for them to give us more than they truly can give us or able to give us. And it's interesting where Solomon goes with this because he's just gone from all these amazing things that he's done, accomplished, done, some of them sinful, some of them not. And then he goes to the grave. And he goes to depression and he goes to the point where he says, I even hated life. I hated life having pursued all of these things and then recognizing that I can't escape death even with the wisdom and wealth that I've accumulated, death is still going to draw near one day. And it looks like on first reading in this passage that Solomon is concerned more about his legacy, the enduring remembrance, he says. There's no enduring remembrance. Well, we're still talking about Solomon today. We remember him. Solomon surely knew that God was doing an important thing in Israel when he built the temple. He knew that his father David had made an important mark on the place. He knew that Moses, some hundreds of years before, had done amazing things and those stories had been preserved and that most likely Solomon's name would be preserved as well. I'm sure he knew that his good and bad would be preserved as well, for he knew of his father David's sins. When you're in power, sometimes it's easy to hide, hide sins, but most of the time those things eventually emerge. They're talked about. As I wrestled through this passage and thought about legacy and what it really means, I don't think that when he talks about an enduring remembrance, he's talking so much about his legacy and people remembering how great he was or what he did. I think that he's talking about life itself. And that life comes to an end at some point. And that death, when you look at it in the headlights, has a startling effect on people. One scholar said this, the prospect of death wonderfully concentrates the mind. It sharpens our senses. We're all faced with this, and some of us choose to deny death, and this seems to be the prevailing approach in society today. To ignore it. It just gets in the way of all the things that I want to do. The philosopher in the 1600s, Blaise Pascal, Christian, also a physicist, mathematician, philosopher, brilliant man, writer, presented 
what's a helpful apologetic, at least an initial apologetic, for anyone who is not thinking about death, who needs to think about death, he said, consider death. Consider that we'll all go there one day. Now consider this. He called it, or maybe other people have termed this his wager. I don't think he termed it this. Come to know as Pascal's wager. He said, just consider the options for a second. Consider two possibilities. One is that God exists. And the other one is that God does not exist. If God exists, and if the promise presented in the Bible of afterlife, eternal life, exists, we have two options on how we're going to live. Either we recognize who God is, or we reject what the Bible says he is. He said, if God exists and you believe in him, the reward is eternal life. If God does not exist and you reject the God of the Bible, nothing lost, nothing gained. Maybe some pleasures gained along the way. He said, but if God exists and if you wager that he does not exist and ignore him, the consequences, the price far outweigh those few pleasures that you give up in the course of life in order to inherit eternal life. But at the heart of that argument is the realization, the the acknowledgement that we need to face death, look at it straight in the headlights and realize, yes, we will die. And think about what the implications for that are. Now that wager is a helpful illustration, but there are all kinds of other assumptions to it that, 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 that require more. That there's far more needed for it. But just to present the, the wager itself, maybe you've never heard it or never thought of it, but it's something that Solomon is wrestling with through with here, and it's it's something that's needed for those of us who would deny death, or deny that death has any power over us. Now, there's a few other options when we're faced with death. We can fear death. It can consume our lives, either our fear of our own death or the fear of others' death. It can become such an overbearing thing that we're afraid to go out and to live. Afraid to take any risks in life. Still other people battle death. They fight against it with all their might. They think that they can escape it somehow. There are There's an increasing number of people who are cryogenically freezing their bodies before they even die in the hope of one day being able to overcome death itself. In 1992, people had been cryogenically frozen. Now, more than 200 people have frozen their bodies. In the words of one man 
as he was about to enter that freezing chamber to his wife, really express it all. He said, I hope this works. <laughs> There's a hope in society that we will someday be able to overcome death. The hope is not new. Perhaps people hold out more hope today because life has been extended in many ways by health uh, care advancements. But it's an ancient desire to want to live forever. Stories have been around for hundreds, if not thousands of years of people being immortal, paying great prices to acquire immortality. Oftentimes we think of the ancients in the time of Solomon as not having a very thorough concept of, of afterlife, of eternity. And it seems like even the Jewish people had kind of a a clouded view of what that is. But there are enough passages in the Old Testament that affirm what Solomon says later in chapter 3, verse 11, that God has put eternity into man's heart. God has put eternity into man's heart. Jesus was challenged by the Sadducees, some powerful people in Israel who didn't believe in anything after life no resurrection and Jesus challenged them he said look at Abraham Isaac and Jacob the patriarchs he used an interesting formula it's a little bit complex but he said basically they believed in an afterlife that life goes on And that because life goes on, our battle, our chief battle is no longer against death. No longer do we need to fear death. But that death, death takes on new meaning. The book of Ecclesiastes has all kinds of echoes from the book of Genesis. And one of the most apparent, clear echoes from the book of Genesis is from Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve eat the fruit. And one of the the biggest consequences of eating that fruit is that death entered the world. That death entered the world. And the promise given there in Genesis 3 is that God would solve that problem. And the problem is solved with the coming of Jesus who took the sting out of death. Who transforms death from something that has power over people to something that no longer has any power to control the people who believe that he has died for the forgiveness of sin and for life everlasting. The Apostle Paul wrestles with this in 1 Corinthians. Turn there for a second. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you're ever wrestling with the question of death, 
1 Corinthians 15 is a powerful, perhaps the most powerful chapter in all of the Bible. And after he's explained the importance of resurrection, the importance of Jesus' resurrection, and the hope that that resurrection, Jesus' resurrection, holds out for all of us, he says this in verse 54, death, is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What does that do for us as believers. What are the implications of this? He says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your your labor is not in vain. Now, come back to Ecclesiastes. And what's the question that Solomon is asking? I'm doing all this stuff. My labor, it's so toilsome. Again, Genesis 3, toilsome, toilsome labor. Solomon comes to this conclusion long before Jesus comes that his labor is not in vain. That his labor is not in vain. And what what ultimately helps Solomon to understand the place of his labor and give him joy in his labor? What is it that changes in Solomon's mind? And it's that Solomon looks to God and tries to receive God's gifts with gratitude. He tries to receive God's gifts with gratitude. Very important phrase in the book of Ecclesiastes, end of verse 24, back in Ecclesiastes chapter 20, chapter 2. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Think about for this for a second. Somebody gives you a gift. Are you a good gift receiver? Not, not a good gift giver. I know a lot of you are gift, good gift, gift givers. And we've been the recipient of many of those gifts, and we are thankful for those. I'm not a good gift receiver. I'll be honest. And it kills, it kills my joy. Are you a good gift receiver? And let me give you some tools to, to think about how you... Do, when you receive a gift, do you think... I really didn't want that color. I wanted this other color. Because that's somebody who receives but still wants more. That's what Solomon gets at in chapter 4, verse 4, when he says, look, labor labor is drived by this one thing, envy. Wanting something somebody else has. Somebody else got that color, but I got this color. Do, Do you get a gift and do you want something different? I do. Do you receive a gift 
and express all kinds of joy and appreciate it. Don't think about taking it back, but then it sits in, in a shelf. Maybe in a cupboard in your room. Maybe you pull it out when the person comes over and you put it back when they leave. This is a gift receiver who knows how to receive with gratitude, but then they never use it. Jesus talked about this when he was talking about the, the talents, not abilities in that sense, but talents being money that were given to three different people and how those people used that money, or in the case of one, opted not to use it. Still, other people receive gifts with no gratitude at all. It's just meaningless. I don't really need gifts. I've got plenty of resources where I work. I make plenty of money. I know what I like to buy. I, I, I know what I need. No gratitude at all. may fake a little bit, but basically no no gratitude. And then the worst of all, of course, would be those who refuse the gift outright. And what Solomon is saying is, look, you may have plenty of money. I had plenty of money, he says. You may have all the things you want. You may have the color chair you want. But the only way ultimately to enjoy those things that you have in life, and he's not talking about just the things you buy, he's talking about everything, including your ability to do the things that make the money. The ability to do the things that impress other people. The only way to find full enjoyment in that is to recognize that those things are from the hand of God and to be a good gift receiver. To be a person who knows how to receive with gratitude and use those things. If you don't use the things that people give you, you are saying ultimately to them, I don't care about you. The best gift givers are the ones who think about the other person and what they love and what they want to do. And they give gifts that the other person will enjoy using. Now, that's not everybody. If you're not a good gift giver, feel free to work on that. And here's the way you work on it. You know the people that you're giving the gifts to. Because that's what God knows about us. God knows you and what you need and also what you will find the best enjoyment in. And when we have this ability, but we always want that ability that somebody else has, we're saying to God, I don't trust that you know me well enough to give me good gifts. And we turn around and we reject God. And then we hate life. And we blame God. One of my teachers, pastor, Zach Eswine, wrote this, a gift a gift isn't earned, it's given. When someone gives us a gift, we do not purchase it, we receive it. A gift is not deserved or obligated, it is bestowed out of the kindness and desire of the giver. 
we're prone to complain about the gifts someone gives us. Entitlement, discontentment, and ingratitude cause us publicly to mock it or to attempt to return it privately for something more desirable. But the preacher, the Ecclesiastes, reorients us. To taste the sweetness of ordinary joys, we learn to enter each day with a conviction about the givenness of all things. Let me read that again. We learn to enter each day with a conviction about the givenness of all things. The Western idea that we should seize the day would change from get out there, assert yourself, take it, make it happen. To something more like open your hands, pay attention to what God is giving and what He is not. Receive with humility what He gives as enough. Thankfully, pursue this. Enjoy this. Now let me give you just a few things. Maybe you're thinking about one thing, but this, this is a broad category. It may have to do with financial wealth, comfort, ease, family life, relationships, intelligence, propensity for certain skills, body type, relational skills, understanding, compassion, conversational skills, generosity, Look at some of the spiritual gifts that are listed in the New Testament. And think about how those relate. How, what, what has God given you? Are you using those things? Are you receiving them with gratitude and using them? Or are you experiencing a lack of joy in your life? See, death sharpens our focus. realizing and being honest about death allows us to enter into life fully knowing the ultimate gift giver and our relationship with him and the, the, the assurance that we have that there is life after death. That the gifts that we give one another are building relationships with one another that will endure forever. We've been given amazing gifts, and we can give amazing gifts without fear, without denial, with confidence that God is at work and knows us well and has done all that we need. Most significantly, saved us from our sin and taken away the sting of death. Let me close with this. Sometimes we hear of others, we know people who are, they're just evil. They have all kinds of success built on their own misguided adventures, ventures, dishonesty. Solomon seemed to be wrestling with this group as well. 
at the end of this chapter 2, says all of it will ultimately be given to somebody who fears God. And this is what God says through his word in Psalm 73. As the psalmist was wrestling through seeing how the wicked prosper, he said, Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Seems like seems like the one side of Pascal's wager is winning out in his mind, in other words. All the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. And then I discern their end. It's a short-term bet, in other words. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by tears. We've learned to build things that are pretty well hurricane-proof. Very few people died. If any, I don't know, I haven't seen the tolls from this last hurricane. Especially compared to hurricanes in other parts of the world where still hundreds of thousands of people oftentimes die. Part of the reason that I wanted to rebuild those shells was for fear of an earthquake. But I don't fear an earthquake is going to kill our family, just ruin our stuff. But even still, we can conquer some of these things, but we can't conquer death. And the question that God is begging us to answer and Solomon is posing before us is, if death is real, if death is real, what are the choices you're making? Because that wager, it really doesn't even compare. It really doesn't even compare when you consider even the possibility of there being eternity with God. (coughs) 